Hey, Katie. Hi, Ben. We talk a lot about startups and startup-y things on this podcast, but there are a whole set of businesses that need data science that maybe don't work in quite the same ways. Right. That for every Facebook or Netflix or Google or tech first startup, there's lots and lots of legacy companies that have been around for a long time that have been doing their thing since long before the internet or cloud computing or any of that was a thing. And that are trying to figure out how to bring data science into their companies. And I would bet moreover that a lot of people who listen to this podcast are data scientists who work at companies like that. And it is a totally different dynamic than from companies that are tech natives, if you like. Nice. So this one is for all of you. You are listening to Linear Digressions. So this episode is very heavily inspired by a very famous book. It's like a business book called The Innovator's Dilemma. It was written by Clay Christensen, who just passed away this week. So I was thinking about him a little bit. Uh, As of the recording, that is. Yes. Uh, Yeah, there's usually a delay of a few weeks. So we'll be getting this later. But it's a book that is pretty popular with managerial and executive types. And so for a lot of people, I would bet that like your boss's boss might know this argument from business school or something, but a lot of data scientists aren't familiar with it, but I think it's very germane to the task that many data scientists have when they work in these established legacy companies. So you're talking about the IBMs of the world. I think IBM is a really good example, uh, but it's basically any company. I don't, yeah, I think any company could be a candidate for this. So here's mm. here's the argument. Here is the, the question that Clay Christensen is trying to answer in Innovator's Dilemma. Is that at any point in time, you can imagine that it was 20 years ago and you're looking at the market and pick an industry, pick, pick a market and say, what firm is the market leader in this industry right now? And you would see some firm like the Sears Roebuck Incorporated or uh, TWA, <laughs> you know, think of think of these big old companies, um, IBM, arguably, and these companies were so dominant in their fields that it seemed like at the time they would never lose that edge. And yet, you know, fast forward twenty years, thirty years, forty years, with striking regularity, they not only did lose that edge, but they, in many cases fell pretty far behind the rest of the market. And that basically what happens is as technology rolls along and it innovates and new stuff comes out, these firms are disproportionately likely to miss the next technological wave, which then means that they get left behind as technology moves on without them. Right. Hewlett Packard isn't on that um, podium anymore. Correct. Yeah. This argument was originally had uh, the computing industry as as one of the core tenets, but it's something that repeats itself. And this argument is, it's not a new argument. No. So this book was written in uh, 1997, if I'm not mistaken. Which is ages and ages and ages ago. (laughs) Well, it has withstood the test of time. I was actually listening to another podcast this weekend where uh, the hosts were talking amongst themselves about basically this exact hypothesis about how there's big companies that kind of miss the next thing. And 
so the thing that in particular Clay Christensen was really interested in was like, what are the dynamics that are happening inside of a market or inside of a firm that makes it so difficult for them to catch that next technical technological advance, right? Because these companies aren't stupid. They know that technically, if you're in a computer company, like you know that new computers are going to be coming out every year. Uh You know that the technology changes. But in particular, there's types of innovation, technological innovation especially, that are very disruptive and that require you to change around the types of customers that you market to, the business model or the, the structure of your organization to accommodate, say, faster production schedules or different economies of scale. And so if you're one of these big incumbent firms, you have almost by definition gotten very, very good, very, very efficient at executing on whatever it is that the market is demanding of you right now. Like you are super good at giving your customers what it is they want, and you make a lot of money doing it. And so when something new comes along, it very often pops up in a smaller side market. It's a distraction to you if you try to go capture this new technology and put it into your roadmap. And usually when it first comes out, it's not very good. It's not, the new thing is usually not as good as the big established things. Like PCs are, in terms of just pure computing power, they are not as powerful as mainframe computers. And so if you're a big mainframe computer manufacturer and you're looking at this new technology that's coming up and you're like, this is not as good as the thing that I'm selling right now. Like, why would I stop doing this extremely profitable, extremely efficient, well-oiled machine process that I have to go make a bet on this technology that my customers are not asking for and that does not work as well as what I do right now. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. That's really interesting. Uh, the, the, the what doesn't work as well as what I'm doing right now, even if you think, okay, what if this was a mature product, you may be stuck in a way of thinking of measuring your product and this new product against metrics that are not really as relevant to the new product. Like, for example, um, if you measure desktop machines and laptops, obviously laptops' key uh, selling feature is mobility, right? And you may just not be prioritizing that given that you sell desktop computers and that's never been a thing you've even thought about. You, You don't evaluate your desktop computer on its portability. Um, but you do evaluate your desktop computer on its speed, its upgradability, it's less a number expensive. of other things. Yeah, it's yeah. L- it's much less expensive. It's easier, so much easier to repair. Um, you can use the keyboard that you like with it. I don't know. So it's it's it seems like it's also a paradigm shift that even if you're willing to make that paradigm shift, you're kind of stuck. Yeah, and the reason that we're talking about this on this podcast is I think that there is a lot of what we're talking about right now. Like I think data science in many cases is a technological innovation. And so if you are a good executive at a big legacy company, you see startups, you see Google and Amazon and Facebook. And if they haven't overtaken you already, they're coming up very fast in your rearview mirror. And so of course, if you're running one of these big incumbent companies, you have to figure out, you have to confront the innovator's dilemma. So it's like, how are you going to, you know that data science is this disruptive technology and that if you don't confront that and come up with a strategy to deal with it, you're going to be left behind. Somebody's going to pass you. 
But at the same time, it's super, super hard to turn an aircraft carrier. And so if you're a data scientist who's working at one of these companies, I've talked to so many people who work at these companies and the data science teams, and they really struggle against the momentum of the institution to just keep doing things the way that they've always been doing it. Because like we talked about before, there's just so much momentum behind that. It's such a it's such a well-oiled machine for cranking out the thing that it's always been cranking out. And you as a data scientist, you're you're very small. <laughs> you know, there's you. Maybe if you're lucky, you have a team and you are tasked with being this this little germ of technological innovation that in the long run is how the company is hoping to save itself from sliding into obsolescence as everything becomes totally data-driven. But at the same time, you know, you might be a team of 10 people in a company of 10,000. And that's very, very difficult for you to pull the whole mass of, of the organization toward your new way of doing things. Wow. So you're basically trying to market what you do, convince people that what you do is important. And Maybe not all. Maybe some of these people are even already pretty signed off on the idea of of using data science. But a lot of people are going to be really resistant to it because they're very accustomed to doing things the way they're already doing them. And maybe they have personal incentives, job security or, or whatever else, to keep doing things the way that they already are. Yeah, and because in many cases, the way that, that things are is actually a really good way for operating for the last five years, maybe for the next five years. It's just that it won't last for the next 20 years. So mm-hmm. the thing is, you have to kind of start pulling away before before the market you know, moves past you. You have to be out in front of it. So that means that you have to let go of this thing that's probably working very well and doesn't have anything wrong with it. It's just that it's not, it's not going to stay there forever. And so if you're one of these data scientists who's working at one of these big companies, like hopefully you're listening to this and you're like, oh yeah, I, I see intellectually what you're talking about, but I don't know, I have a lot of buy-in and I feel like I can have a lot of agency to go change things and everybody's super on board and you know, you feel like you, it might be really big, but it still can move pretty quickly. That's ideal and great. But if you don't find yourself in that position. There are a few things to think about that do tend to correlate with success in these kinds of cases. It's it's a super hard thing to do, so there's it's not always successful in navigating the innovator's dilemma successfully. But one of the things that, that does seem to help is it's like, all right, if I'm the executive, I'm the CEO who's in charge of taking my big established company and figuring out what it's a hundred years old and I have to figure out what its data strategy is going to be for the next hundred years. What I shouldn't do is take my four data scientists or my 10 data scientists and ask them to do something that is on the scale of what the rest of the company is doing right now, which seems like it should be obvious, but sometimes people miss. So the idea is if you're the little data science team and you're compared against this big behemoth of a company, you can't be compared on things like the number of dollars that flow through your organization or Mm -hmm. the size of the 
transactions that you're able to process or you know, something like this, because you're not big enough yet. You don't have enough of a momentum for the little innovation engine to compete with the big performance engine. So little innovation engine, it needs to stay small and it needs to be evaluated on a different set of criteria than the big company as a whole. Otherwise, the big company will just swallow it. So this means you take your innovation groups and you put them not in the main organization where they can just be kind of trampled by everything else that's going on, but kind of in their own space. They have their own processes. They usually have their own metrics that they optimize towards. They're trying to learn as much as they can. They're not trying to make money because, again, they can't make enough money to make a dent in you know, the overall balance sheet of the company. Instead, what you're looking for is things that are growing quickly or that are learning really fast. And so you have them kind of this small, sheltered, and exploratory space where they can foster that, that, little, that little flame that they have. And then as they're gently fanning it and trying to figure out how to make it catch a little bit more, that's when you line up your people who are leading those innovation initiatives with kindred spirits who are in the big performance engine who can help them take some of those first sparks and merge them back into the big performance engine so that, you know, only once they're strong enough, do you try to pull them back into the company? It's super hard to do. It's really, really hard to do, but there are sometimes companies that manage to figure out how to do it. And this seems to be the most common path that they take. You know, oddly, it seems almost like that advocates for making little startups within your gigantic company and yeah. giving them a huge amount of autonomy. It's, yeah. it's kind of um, a way of putting it. And one of the benefits of that is if you compare, like, let's say a hardware company, let's say that there's some hardware innovation that's, that's coming up. Companies that have huge amounts of resources and maybe even equipment that would be really useful, I mean, they're, they have that advantage. And then the little startup, not the one that they create, but some other startup out in the world, they don't have necessarily a lot of capital. They don't necessarily have a lot of equipment, but they do have that agility. And so I guess then the argument is, if you can take your large company and its resources and you can create these groups that have a huge amount of agility and um, are not measured based on metrics that they can't possibly hit because they're tackling ideas that are maybe in, in their infancy or relatively early on, then you can kind of get the best of both worlds. But like you said, it's really it's really hard to incorporate that once you have something to incorporate. Yeah, I mean, since we're talking about books, there's another one here that I'll recommend that I think does a nice job of talking about this. It's called The Other Side of Innovation. We'll have links to the um, Amazon pages for both of these books if you want to pick up a copy or, or go get them from the library. The Other Side of Innovation in particular talks about innovators' dilemmas, just about why these companies, these big companies, miss the technological, disruptive technological innovations that, that pass them by. So I think that's a good starting place, but it kind of lays out the problem. There's a sequel, I think, called The Innovator's Solution by the same author that I haven't read. So maybe that also gives you some pointers. Um, haven't personally read it, so I, I don't know for sure. But The Other Side of Innovation is a, a book that's a little more solution-minded uh, and says kind of like, okay, great, you've decided to have an innovation initiative. 
how should you structure it and how should you think about what it does? What's going to be, what are some of the hardest things about that initiative? You know, what are the things that it's easy to forget about until they creep up on you and by then it's too late? So it it does a nice job, I think, of kind of laying a roadmap for people who are either in charge of innovation initiatives or are working quite closely with them to help them think about uh, what are the the things that you want to be thinking about early on in those initiatives to make them more successful in the long run? What are some of the better ways you can structure them? So it's kind of like a how-to manual of doing something, doing something innovative inside of a big, highly optimized organization that's doing something else. Uh, so probably also very interesting and quite relevant to a lot of our listeners. Linear Digressions is a creative commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.